Hello, my name is Grant, and I'm lead pastor at New Song Church. Once again, it is a joy and a privilege to be able to join you wherever you are. And uh, there's some uh, really uh, special events coming up very soon. I'm really excited for Easter, a uh, really big event. And uh, actually, one of our staff members commented that it's kind of like the Super Bowl of the Christian calendar. It really is what this is all about. You know, Christmas is fantastic that we celebrate the birth of Jesus. But this whole season of Lent and then into Holy Week and then Easter is really the, the culmination and the climax of the whole gospel story uh, that Jesus uh, is, is crucified and he takes upon himself all the sin of the world. But then on the third day, he raises to life and brings life with him to all people. And um, it's just an incredible moment. And we're excited to celebrate that together. I hope that uh, you have heard about and understand some of the things that we're doing on Easter Sunday. I hope you can attend the sunrise service. Uh, we're still looking for the perfect spot to do that. So please keep an ear out for the information about that. And then I hope that also you can come to the campus and join us for some in-person celebration after our online experience. And I just want to say that um, this is not a case of pick one uh, because they're all going to be kind of similar events and we're just giving a range of ways to access them. They're actually part of the whole package, you know. It's kind of like when you have a three-course meal. It's not really good just to sit and just have the soup and leave the main course and the dessert or just eat dessert, although I know some of you probably eat dessert first. Um, as, as an old uh, friend of mine once said, you know, I don't know how much time I've got. I'm gonna eat, when he was eating dessert first, he said, I'm going to do this right now in case I don't get to it after the meal. But uh, it's really a chance to have something that's fully nourishing. So the sunrise service has a particular, a particular story connected to that and an experience that we want to uh, be together a part of. Uh, the online uh, section is also going to bring a fresh perspective and then this chance to gather again will also be a unique experience. So I'd encourage you to sign up for all of these things. And if for some reason you find it difficult or there's some obstacle for you doing so, please let us know and we will do our best to help you to connect. You know, Easter Sunday is typically understood to be a big day for families. Uh, this year for sure is going to be different you know, even though many have had their vaccinations and, and some things are starting to open up, it's, it's going to take a lot of ingenuity. Uh, and people are probably going to have to modify a lot of their traditions. But I imagine there will still be a big focus on attempts to gather together somehow, connect with the people whose name we share. It's a big thing on Easter Sunday. Uh, taking our kids and grandkids to some kind of Easter egg hunt, having an Easter lunch or dinner together, uh, perhaps outside this year, and I hope the weather's going to be good. You know, family and church have always been a big uh, um, uh, partnership in American religion. They've always gone hand in hand. Actually, the most attended service, trailing only slightly, be slightly behind Christmas Eve and uh, Easter Sunday, is Mother's Day. It's one of the biggest attendance days on the church calendar where mothers persuade their children, perhaps, to come with them to church. It's a big day. And it tells us something about family and about the power and the connection of that and maybe how that has become involved in many ways with how we understand our faith and our practice and the people to whom we are connected as we seek to follow Jesus. Well, we've been learning that in God's kingdom, every single thing is up for reappraisal, reexamination, and those who claim to follow Jesus or seek to follow Jesus, we, we must open up our lives to him for scrutiny and for correction and for redirection. 
And so today, we're going to be invited into an entirely different understanding of family. Family in the kingdom of God may for sure include some of our blood relatives, but family in the kingdom of God is much, much wider than that and deeper than that. And it is determined upon some entirely different sets of criteria than simply bloodline or some other affiliation that we're aware of um, in our culture. So what does it mean to be family in God's kingdom What does Mark tell us? Let's hear the living word of God to us today as we consider this question. And we're in Mark chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 20 through 35. Uh, If you have a Bible, uh, follow along. If you're joining us at 9 o'clock on Sunday morning, there's a Bible tab. You can click on that and read the text along with me. Uh, Let's begin. Then Jesus entered a house... And again, a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, People can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting all around him and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Man, this passage is a hard one. It's just all full of struggle and accusation and division and suspicion. And I think, what could be more appropriate for these days? I don't remember ever experiencing such a climate and atmosphere of conflict and anger and mistrust and division. Not only in our nation, but in our communities and families and marriages and friendships. And most tragically of all, in the church the body of Christ, the chosen means by which God's good news is meant to be coming to a dark and perishing world in need of hope. So the the hope is there, it is full, it's abundant, and and the church is to be this, this vehicle, this conduit for it to come to the world, to the neighborhood, to the community, to the nation, to the world. And we are in a mess, it seems. You know, there's a book uh, I've recommended about unanswered prayer. It's called God on Mute. 
And there's this prayer, it, it, it points out that, you know, sometimes we feel our prayers are unanswered. Well, we can find commonality with Jesus in that because there's at least two or three prayers that he prayed that, 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 that were answered in a delayed fashion. One of them is yet to be answered to this day. And it's this, he prayed, may they, my followers, all be one as we, Father, are one. And that's not taking place. We see even more division uh, this, this oneness of God and the Father and the Holy Spirit is this beautiful picture of love, mutual love and respect and collaboration and common will and purpose, each part fitting with the others. And that's not what I, what I see when I view the landscape of the church today. You know, I've never experienced such a degree of disunity and criticism Christian ugliness and co-option to lesser ideologies and allegiances. This has been a hard year. And perhaps, as many have said, we are merely seeing what already existed all the time. And it just took this crisis, this time, to really cast a light on it, to reveal it for what it is. And that is actually a gift that we can, we can see and we can begin to address. And I want to fight against this. I want to be part of a movement to address these issues. I don't feel that I'm any longer prepared to stand by, frozen by fear and indecision of saying or doing the wrong thing. And it's time for action because I want to live in unity with my brothers and my sisters. There is serious work to put our hands and our minds and our hands and our feet to and it, and it takes us all to be intentional and decide that, that now is the time. How about you? Are you sick of the state of affairs? Are you looking for a way forward? What, so what do we do when the struggle and challenge uh, of our actual lives meets the struggle and challenge of a gospel story like this? We see this crisis in this moment that, that, that somehow we see reflected in our own lives. The words on the page come to life in the experiences of today, which is certainly the case in this passage. Well, what we do is we look for the central, unmoving, solid, trustworthy character in the biblical story, and then we seek to find him in the everyday moments of our lived experience. And that's, we point to Jesus, we look at Jesus, we seek for Jesus both in the story and then we want to find him in our lives and situate ourselves uh, in relation to him. And this passage tells us a lot about Jesus. There's revelations in this passage that are profound about Jesus. One of the challenges of addressing a passage like this is there's a lot of kind of mystery but, but to, to dig into that is to reveal something amazing about Jesus. He continues, we read in the story, to be someone to whom people are drawn in great numbers. Yet his fame is not all that incredible. There were other famous people before and after him. There have always been celebrities to whom people will flock. Um, so Jesus was popular at this point, but that was not the point. Popularity is no guarantee of truth or quality. Um, I'd just like to give an example of that. You know, my favorite pizza topping is anchovies. And I think I'm probably in a minority here to believe that it is the most wonderful, appropriate, and delicious compliment to any fine pizza crust and sauce. Um, 
but you know, I'm probably in the minority. There's, there's no uh, sense that that is like the most true thing because there's a lot of disagreement. So, you know, uh, popularity rises and falls on the whims of the public. Um, and so Jesus' popularity is not the point. But, but in this story, we see something right at the center of the story, which gets completely to the heart of what is so significant about Jesus, both his person and his mission. And it is preceded by something important that we need to understand. It's a new term that Mark uses that we need to understand because it's going to start appearing a lot as we continue in the gospel. And it appears in verse 23 where it says that Jesus began to speak to them, the teachers of the law, in what we call parables. So parables is a word we need to understand if we're going to understand this truth about Jesus that is contained in this passage. What is, what is parable? Well, first thing to say is the primary means of Jesus' teaching in the Gospels, parables. And literally it means, kind of parables means side to sides. Uh, it's really the setting of something alongside something else to make a point. It's like a juxtaposition of two things for the purpose of illumination. Uh, and Jesus typically does this by using a commonplace item or something that was understood by the people of his time, his original listeners, in order to describe something important about the kingdom of God or his place in it or the, or the place others should seek to find in the kingdom of God. And it describes somewhat the indescribable and it invites curiosity. It's not merely a simple statement of fact. It's somewhat a, a, an invitation to, to, to kind of ponder and reflect and perhaps understand the deeper truths that are, that are at stake here. Next week, we're going we're to read the, the first kind of main parable that we're going to encounter in Mark, and it's the parable of the sower and the seed. You may have heard of it. Uh, a sower is sowing seed, and it falls on different kinds of soil. And, and actually, in that story, Jesus gives all the details of the parable. He tells us what each element in the story of commonplace things is meant to mean in, in the bigger story of the kingdom of God. But in this one uh, here, which is a story of a strong man, he doesn't give us any information. He doesn't uh, um, tell us what the points are, are meant to be connected with in, in the kingdom of God. So we need to do a little bit of detective work. Uh, the passage, if we look back at, at the text again, is this. It says, um, in fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. What on earth does that mean? Where is Jesus in this picture and what is this meant to be about? So the first question we can ask ourselves is, who is the stronger one? Who is this one who comes and enters a strong man's house and, and, and immobilizes him and then is beginning to plunder this strong man's house? Who is the stronger one spoken of by Jesus? Well, we have a clue uh, already in the Gospel of Mark. Because the same word for strong has been used once already by John the Baptist. And it comes right at the beginning in chapter 1. Remember this, it says, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful, more strong than I. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. 
So it seems clear that in John the Baptist, Mark the gospel writer, and Jesus' understanding, Jesus himself is the stronger one. He is the strong one who has come. In fact, he is the strongest one. So let's look at the next element. Who in the story is the one, who, the one that, is, that is somewhat strong but is overcome and is bound? And the context in which the parable is situated tells us this. It's within this speech that Jesus gives to the religious leaders. And if we look at this, it's full of references to whom? References to Satan, to demons, to Beelzebul. So it seems very probable that the one to whom Jesus is referring in this parable as the straw man is the devil, is Satan, is the enemy. And, and this enemy has been somehow bound as Jesus is call, calling us to reflect on uh, the reality of the kingdom of God and what is occurring in this moment of his arrival and the bringing of the kingdom. Uh, there's this binding of Satan and, and this is somehow, it seems like it has already been accomplished to some degree. When was this dark power bound? Well, once again, the context is important. Uh, we read earlier in the Gospel of Mark, the only other uh, reference to Satan that has occurred is when Jesus has just been baptized and then is led into the wilderness. And it says, a voice came from heaven to Jesus upon his baptism saying, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. At once the spirit sent him into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. So the sonship of Jesus, the special, unique one who has come to bring the kingdom is proclaimed with this baptism. Uh, God's love and pleasure with him is proclaimed. And then immediately there's this power that Jesus encounters. And actually he's led by the spirit into this, into this encounter with Satan in the wilderness. And it says he's being tempted for 40 days. And the story which is expanded upon by Matthew and Luke tells us that Jesus overcomes every single thing that this enemy, this strong one throws at him. He overcomes every single moment. I imagine the shock and surprise to the enemy when he comes at this, this man, Jesus, not fully, un, fully understanding the whole picture and, and is thwarted at every turn by this man. You know, the game is on, the battle is on, but notice has been given to this enemy, to Satan, that, that his time is coming to a close. So in the parable, there's also the mention of a house, a house that is being plundered, that the powerful one who has been overcome and bound is, is inhabiting. What is the house? Well, I think it's God's creation. The house is the sphere of all human activity with its rooms of power and politics and religion and commerce that the kingdom is now coming into. And, and, and these, uh, this house has been so deeply infiltrated by these powers that oppose God and seek to destroy and lie and kill and deceive. And they have been running rampant. And even today is what we continue to see, so much of the brokenness and the wickedness and the cruelty and the darkness uh, that is all around us and even within us that we see is the story of this, this power that is abroad in the world, this house of God's creation. And so the entire rest of the story in Mark 
from this point on, when Mark has made it clear that this is, this is the point, that there's, that there's actually this kind of a, a overcoming of these powers that have, have long been harassing God's creation, Christ has come and he's entering into this work of undoing this death grip and, and removing it and healing it and saving it and bringing life to things that were formerly dead and, and casting out this power and defeating this power, which is going to find a, a fuller expression as Christ takes upon himself uh, the sin of the world, uh, thus taking away the power of death over the creation that God loves. And so the message of Mark that we're hearing is that Jesus is now calling to himself a community who will engage with the world in the same kind of way to follow his teaching and in his power be the subversive force for good against the entirety of the kingdom of darkness that seeks to keep uh, the, the creation in subjection to these powers. This is what Jesus is doing. He has come. So every other character we can understand in the Mark's gospel is portrayed in light of this mission. Every character finds its identity uh, either towards or against, with or opposed to this mission and its central character, Jesus. And therefore, as we read through, the response of each character or group of characters in this gospel is very instructive for those of us who would seek to follow this path with Jesus. So what has this got to do with families? We talked about families. In fact, this sermon is called Focus on the Family, which might ring true to some of you folks who've been in the church for a long time. But what does that have to tell us about families? Um, there are three families here in this story. Uh, the first one is his mother and his brothers, Jesus' family, his natural family, Mary, uh, and some of his brothers. So Jesus' blood family is the first one. The second is uh, the leaders of the Jewish religion, are representatives of this wider family, which is Jesus' religious family, the Jewish people of, of which he is a part. It's very much a, a, a traditional kind of family uh, entity. And then thirdly, we hear of this third group, this family, and it's the group of men and women who are following Jesus. And according to Jesus, we hear in this story that these are his true family. So we're going to consider each in turn, as Mark describes them, remembering that Jesus is a central character, remembering the mission that he is bringing to the earth with the kingdom, and then understanding how each character orients themselves towards him and his uh, response to them is where we can learn, where we ourselves might want to fit into this picture uh, with Jesus. So first thing, Jesus' earthly family. How are they characterized by their orientation toward Jesus? What does Mark tell us uh, in this story as they come? Well, the first thing is, apparently, Jesus' family are not anywhere near him until this point in the story. They've been off doing their own thing. Um, might be wondering why they haven't seen him for a little while, but when they hear some news about him, they are disturbed and they now move towards Jesus. They go to seek him out, but, but not from any prior uh, uh, attraction, but simply because they've heard something disturbing. 
that Jesus is, is involved in this very popular kind of movement and they're pretty, they're pretty concerned. Geography and travel are very important in Mark's gospel. The way characters move towards or away from situations or places is very instructive. We can learn a lot from where and when characters move. So Jesus' family moves towards Jesus now and Mark tells us that there's a very specific reason for this and a very specific purpose. He says in verse 21 that they go to take charge of him, to take charge of him. It's a very strong term. It actually is the word meaning to arrest or detain or to drag him away. And why do they do this? Well, Mark tells us in verse 21 also, for they said he is out of his mind. What is happening here? What is happening here? What is Mark trying to tell us? Well, let's think about this. What is the relationship between Jesus and these people, okay? It is based upon the familiarity that they have had of being a family from the same bloodline and living in the same house with probably a shared purse of uh, financial responsibility. Um, Jesus is known to them as a son and, and uh, as a brother. Uh, and so now when they hear these stories about what Jesus is doing, he is stepping out with everything that they've understood about him. And their conclusion is that he has clearly lost his mind. He's, he's approximately age 30 when he begins his ministry. And the whole time up to that point, he's probably a relatively normal child and young person. We don't really hear anything at all in the Gospels, except for one small story when he was a child and he got lost when the family visited Jerusalem. Apart from that, we don't hear anything. Apparently, it's not really of interest to the Gospel writers to tell us anything about his life up to this point. But now something radical is happening and Jesus' family are very, very concerned about him and they go to possess him. His behavior is wrong. It seems abhorrent to them. And so they, they think he has lost his mind. He needs to be protected. He needs to be stopped. He needs to be corralled back into their uh, company again and taken away from this position that he is in. What is going on here? Well, it seems that they have an expectation of how he should behave. Perhaps also that their family's needs should be the priority for him. He is ours. He needs to stop this nonsense and get back to normal serving our family. And furthermore, this society was deeply about honor and shame. The respect of a family was important. They're probably quite concerned with the, the danger to their reputation that Jesus' act, Jesus's activities may cause to them. And so it tells us about what happens. It's very much about their orientation and their approach to Jesus and the distance or otherwise. There's a lot about this in this story. So Mark tells us that when they come, there's something very particular about it. They don't immediately go up to Jesus. It says, rather than entering in and coming in person to their son, their brother, Mark says this, then Jesus' and, mother and brothers arrived, standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. What, what can we make of this? Well, perhaps once again, the crowds were just too thick to permit entrance. He's being crowded in. Maybe it's just not enough space. But perhaps also, Judging by the types of people that we have seen who've been attracted to Jesus and who are gathering around Jesus, the prospect of making their way through this kind of crowd was not one they wanted to experience, especially to get to this son who has apparently lost his mind completely. The company that he is keeping uh, don't particularly uh, 
seem like the kind of company they would want to be uh, participating with. So we might try to find ourselves in this picture. Where might we situate ourselves in terms of understanding what we might understand about ourselves from how Jesus' family uh, come to him? Now, this is quite tricky to think about, but, but as I pondered it, I thought that this is kind of a tendency that Christians can be prone to. That we, due to time and familiarity, we can get to a place where we assume an awful lot about Jesus. We can assume that we know him. We understand what he would want or what he should want. We understand what he would say or what his attitude would be to any particular subject because we are so familiar with him in all his ways. Even down to the kinds of people that we think Jesus would associate with or not. And I think the second thing is also that there's a familiarity sometimes with Christians and Jesus that makes us believe that we are closer to him than other people. That somehow we have an inside connection with him because he is our brother. We are his children. Whatever family terms which the Bible uses all the time to describe can kind of become a little toxic and a little unhelpful that we perhaps can forget who this person is that we are dealing with because he is the Lord. He is the Savior. He is God, completely unknowable in as, except in as much as he has made himself known to us. And I think that we need to remember this, that if we are not regularly shocked by Jesus, then we're probably not paying attention. We're probably falling into this familiarity trap where we expect and assume that we know a lot more about him than we have real merit to do so or license to do so. I remember a, a song in the first church that Ron and I attended. And it was a wonderful group of people um, and very pivotal in our coming to know Jesus. But they sang this song spontaneously at times. I think someone would just like say, they'll sing the song. And it's called, uh, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. I could probably sing it for you right now if we had time. Uh, just give me a shout sometime, I'll sing it for you. But it begins, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. Well, the thing was, it seemed as if everybody in the church knew the words to this song except us. Because we were pretty much the only new people there. And these words were not displayed anywhere. And so Ron and I took us a long time to figure out what the words even were before we even had confidence. And up to that point, we would just kind of mouth, open our mouths, like pretending we knew because we felt kind of pressure to, to believe, you know, act as if we knew the words. And so the, uh, but it took a long time before we could join the family in singing the official family song. You know, this was not intentional at all. These were great people. But the very words themselves seemed to speak of a belonging that was assumed by the insiders. And, and, and that caused the outsiders uh, to really feel that. And I think it's this sense of familiarity that can become quite toxic in our churches. So that's the first family, 
Jesus' blood family. Second thing, Jesus' religious family. And it is, it's the teachers of the law are representatives of this greater family of religion. The sons of Israel, sons of God, fathers of the faith. All of this religion had this kind of familial, uh, parental, child kind of like uh, sense to it in the language that they would use. And these, these men are fierce protectors of the family business. It's very much like that. It's a family business which protects its own and protects its turf. And they view this as their responsibility. And Jesus, we see, this is how this family relates to Jesus. Jesus is seen as an imposter and a threat to the family business. So Mark tells us that these men come, come to this place. And it, once again, geography and travel and proximity and direction are really key in Mark. What does Mark tell us about these men? It says that they come down from Jerusalem. So they're coming from elsewhere. They also have not been around Jesus. They are moving from another place and it's a very particular place. It's a place of, it's the capital city. It's the place of power. It's actually south of where Jesus is currently ministering, but Mark says they come down from Jerusalem, which is actually, it's on some hills. It is truly this kind of like city up on a hill. It's a, it's a place of grandeur and power and hierarchy and authority. And so they make this trip towards Jesus. This is the representatives of his religion. Uh, something that should be, you would believe, uh, open to the critique that he brings uh, and he truly is bringing a critique that they need to hear, but they have not been part of, the, ex, part of this movement except for where they can come for the purposes of examination and inspection and evaluation and criticism and control. They've, we've already heard they have decided that Jesus must die and now all that is done is to gather evidence by which to do so, to make this happen and to seek to dis discredit him in the eyes of the people. So Mark says, the teachers of the law came down from Jerusalem and they said, he is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons by this power. This is Jesus' second family. This is a hard thing. Thinking about this, this is Jesus's, if you think about the main spheres of connection and family and belonging that should have been for Jesus or any other person in that time, the most home-like, nourishing, life-giving sources of that for him. And these are the ones who are in many ways judging him the harshest with criticism and rejection and derision. These two main places, his blood family and his religious family. So what do we see? What we see is this, is that Jesus, in response to this, builds a new family, is building a new family out of strangers. And actually in particular, out of the others who similarly have found themselves ostracized or rejected or judged or cast out from the traditional bonds of family of that culture of that day. He's building a family from these people. And in doing this very process, he is enacting the kingdom process by which the world actually might be healed and the ravages of the enemy might be countered and cast down. 
So here's the third family, Jesus's true family. And this is from his words. This, this is my family, he says. And they are characterized by only a few things, a few simple things. They are not family with him by familiarity. They are not family with him by institutional titles or power or official connection. No common background in particular or prior relationship to Jesus. They're, they're from a multitude of backgrounds and stories. And here's the thing, here's what connects them. Jesus is their sole common denominator and point of connection. These people, this family, what are they characterized by? Not by any uh, previously understood form of connection or belonging. They are characterized primarily by their proximity to Jesus in this passage. Mark uses these words so skillfully to tell us that this is what it's all about. This is what the family is all about. This is the family that Jesus is calling to himself. It's all about that very inaction, that movement towards him. Three times Mark repeats this in verse 20. He says, again, a crowd gathered around Jesus. 32, a crowd was sitting around him. So, so they gather, they're coming, they're moving towards him from out of their brokenness and they're coming and gathering. And then now they're sitting around him. You notice that movement? They come, they gather from all these places and they're collecting around him and then they're sitting around him. And then thirdly, in verse 20, 34, he says, he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Here is my family. And they are characterized firstly by their proximity, their lingering, their habituation of being with Jesus. And secondly, they're characterized by what Jesus says about them. And actually, this is a wonderful, wonderful thing because it tells us that it, your, the criteria is not about what you already have or what you've done or where you've been or anything about your past or your present, but it actually is about a growing future. He says, whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. My family, he says, are those who join me, who are with me, who are in proximity to me and who follow me into this mission, into this work, into this will of God. And, 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 and what it makes this even more uh, exciting and wonderful and clear is a very small phrase which will appear in Mark again and again and again. And it's in verse 35. And it's when Jesus says these words in the NIV, it says this, truly, I tell you, truly, I tell you, in other translations it says actually, amen, I say to you, or in the King James, verily I speak, speak unto thee. This is a really important phrase that Jesus is using here, especially to the people of his day, because there's a transference of God's authority all through the Old Testament and all through the prophets who spoke for God and, and fully becomes this, this possession of Jesus. Because all the prophets would say, thus saith the Lord. 
And, and typically people would say, um, truly, I repeat what God has said. And now Jesus comes and says, verily, I say to you. So this is a word straight from God to his people. And so rather than having a sense that determining God's will by some remote um, source that somehow God will speak to them, he is right there with them. And their closeness to him enables them to watch and follow and perceive what it is they're doing and to, to actually become to be apprenticeship, discipled into what he does. So Jesus is the center of all of this and there's these three family types that relate to him. And, and so we've got to notice this. Jesus relates to all three of those. He doesn't just receive their uh, you know, relationship to him, but he actually responds to them in some ways. Quickly, we're just going to go through these. The first thing, the blood family. Jesus doesn't give them any special treatment. You know, they, they expected it. And here's what they need. They need a new revelation of who he is. They may have thought they knew who he was. They may have thought they had it all figured out, just as we often do. And they need a new revelation of who he is. And I think we need the same. They are invited to become true mothers and brothers and sisters to stay a while and to understand who he is and what he's about. In fact, the only other mention of this family group of Jesus' blood relatives comes later in Mark and it's in chapter six. And it says this, that Jesus left the place he was at and he went to his hometown. His disciples came with him and he began to teach. And people are kind of amazed once again about his wisdom and his authority. But they say this, they say, isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And it says that Jesus couldn't really do any miracles there because of this. It seems that this family didn't really quite get it that they don't have an inside line on Jesus, uh, that this, this uh, opportunity is open to all people. And secondly, the religious family. Uh, how, how does Jesus relate to them? What's his orientation to them as they come? Well, they're invited to recognize that the God whom they worship has come to them and is coming to establish his kingdom. Uh, what is remarkable is the grace that Jesus uh, gives to them and the patience with which he relates to them. And it's quite amazing considering what they are saying to him, what they're considering in their hearts about doing to him, that he responds to them in such a beautiful way. Immediately after um, they have accused Jesus in front of everyone of being demon-possessed and that he's performing his miracles by these diabolical powers, the ultimate blasphemy to say that, it says this, Mark says, Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them. Jesus gestured over, come over here and began to speak to them. Just think about this. These leaders have traveled a journey from Jerusalem of about 80 miles to condemn and criticize Jesus. And now Jesus invites them to take a much smaller journey, a journey of mere steps to come in to proximity toward him, to move out of their place of aloof judgment and step into the circle in order they might learn from him and save themselves and listen to his clear explanation of what is happening. And he reserves his strongest warning for these men because I know he is, he is grieved that their hearts are so hard 
And he makes this warning, which can scare us. It says, truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They're guilty of an eternal sin. But yet, with this warning, he gives an invitation for them to step into the circle and to turn and to become part of the family. And then finally, Jesus's orientation, relationship with this true family. You know, these people have no claim to a special relationship with him any official connection or claim to a a voice or place in the family, but they're simply present. And that is the beginning of the story for them. They're on an adventure with him day by day, learning afresh what it means to be fully human in Christ's kingdom. And Jesus is having them join him in this this work of plundering the strong man's house, uh, becoming as disreputable as he is, but in doing so, find themselves in this new family, in this new kingdom. These are challenging times for us all. And and, and the invitation is simple. If we are tired of the status quo, uh, we we can receive this call, this invitation to step into this family, this movement, this mission. Uh, I would encourage us to take careful consideration in the coming weeks and months about what that calling might be for you to to really consider what has been my relationship to Jesus? Has it been one of familiarity? Has it been one of expectation? Uh, Or has it been one of simple, humble obedience and a desire to follow him? Let's pray. Father, Lord, uh, we simply ask that you would teach us May we be those who seek you out. Maybe we we be those who don't assume that we know everything about you. And maybe we be those who love our brothers and our sisters in this family and seek to honor and love and respect them as you lead each one of us uh, to collaborate in the mission that you are uh, all about on this earth, in our community, in our lives, in our families. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.